This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good morning, everyone, or afternoon, depending on whether you listen to this, what time, I really don't care, but hello, 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 can you dig it? I am back, <coughs> somewhat in reasonable fashion, so I don't know who listens to this podcast, I'll be quite honest with you, I don't really look at my analytics or whatever, or anything you know like that, I just kind of make this to make it, and then shoot it out to and see what happens, if people tell me they listen, great, if people don't tell me they listen, that's also great, so, but... I, fi I figure like I haven't been on here in a couple weeks, so I figured I'd explain my absence. So with the cough, you might have thought that I was sick, and I have been sick. I got COVID. So I'm recording this on Saturday. So two weeks ago, I tested positive, and 15 days ago, so a day before this, I began to feel like the shittiest I've probably ever felt in my entire life. I'd like like I used to think COVID was like a government conspiracy and shit like that, but I... Like, I, th this is very real. Like, this is a very real thing. And I did not understand how it was really going to hit people until I got it myself. So what happened was, I thought I was in the clear. I thought I already had the thing. But so I, I went home for Easter, and you'll notice I had a really short and honestly very shitty post and podcast on the Easter weekend because I went home for the holiday to celebrate with my family and I was kind of, you know, I didn't really have a lot to do because I was doing so much stuff with them. So I'm like, okay, I'll just put a thought out there that I had and see what happens. And so I flew back home on Tuesday. I bounced um, from a couple airports because we accidentally booked the wrong ticket. And then all the other stuff kind of happened where it was like, you know, bouncing around from airports and all that. So I texted my one friend and asked her if she could pick me up from, you know, from the airport. And she said, uh, sure, because she's a very nice person. So she picked me up. And she had two of her roommates who were also my friends in the car. So I'm like, okay, this is great. This is a nice thing. And so I get a text uh, the next day from one of them saying that um, this girl who will pick me up is now COVID positive, which I was like, you know, oh, that, you know, that really kind of sucks because she was going to go out of town that weekend. Apparently they had bought bottle service at a table at some club in Chicago to uh, visit with some of her friends and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, that sucks. So I, um, and you know, I thought the COVID nuke was going to get dropped on, uh, their whole house, which it eventually did. So I bought them all ice cream and brought them over and all that other stuff. So did that. <clears throat> and then um, two days later, I started feeling like shit. And I'm just like, oh, no. And so I tried to sleep it off. I just was kind of like, okay, I'll take the night off, whatever. And then I was just kind of like, you know, blech, like for the rest of the day, like I felt worse after I took a nap for like an hour. And then um, the next day I felt horrible. So I 
went into the urgent care by me, got tested, all that other stuff. And it turns out that I had a fever of like 103. So I had to obviously get that taken care of every symptom in the book and then booked it to a CVS, got like a gallon of orange juice, two pints of ice cream and some other, you know, cans of soup, I think, and basically had a liquid diet for the next three days, more sick than I've ever been in my entire life. And kind of just rode that wave until I kind of got rid of it. So that was kind of, you know, my experience the past couple of weeks, which was never fun or which is never fun, I should say. But, you know, obviously like, you know, in, in COVID, especially when you're sick and when you're quarantined and everything, I, I'm guessing a lot of you have probably had it or know someone that has it or whatever. But when, you know, I was inside and I felt like shit, like, I don't want to say I didn't feel like shit, but I noticed that when I was kind of really sick, and I'm lucky I got sick over weekend. I actually had a long weekend of work, so I had Monday off as well. So <clears throat> I was basically toiling in my misery from about Friday night through Tuesday morning. And then I kind of been filtering out the rest of the week. As you can see, my cough is still there. But I couldn't really do much. And, you know, I was just thinking like, oh, I'm just being a bitch or whatever. And then I texted my one friend who I had, and they're like, no, this is a pretty serious thing. Like, it basically took all of us out. And uh, so I think I had a... I don't know what the hell kind of strand I had, but I it fucking made me sick as all hell. So anyway, I'm you know kind of trying to recover, nursing my. I couldn't even watch TV. I had migraines. I had all this other stuff. So, but I spent a lot of time on my technology. Spent a lot of time with my phone. Spent a lot of time with all this other stuff going on. And I realized kind of how unhealthy it was. And you know, the last year, I think a lot of people have been experimenting this. There's kind of like this getting off of technology type of thing happening. I did a certain thing with my technology where I didn't use any form of social media, any form of internet, any form of streaming for a month just to kind of cleanse myself and really kind of see what I needed and what I thought was important and what wasn't important. It actually turned out to be a very valuable exercise. And when I was not on this and I was just kind of relegated to my bed and couldn't really move and was just kind of watching TV and watching Netflix and doing all this other shit and being all on my whatever... I couldn't write either because I really couldn't concentrate. I basically had to veg out for that, you know, three weekend while the coat and three day weekend while the COVID filter, filtered out of me. And I kind of just really got a taste of what, of how really unhealthy that lifestyle is and how kind of really sensitive it can make us when, you know, and how just different my lifestyle is now that I don't use the stuff anymore. If you, if you don't know me personally very well, I don't use technology hardly at all. I barely watch TV. I only really watch it for sports. And that's very rarely. I watch maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes a day, if that. And, you know, so I only really use my technology for music. I only, I don't have any social media on my phone. I didn't download Instagram once a week. I uh, have 20 people on my Snapchat. I got rid of my Facebook, got rid of my Twitter, got rid of all this other social media stuff that I had. And, you know, it just, it's made my life a lot better. And I think, you know, when I was, and when I was doing this, I kind of wanted to get a better grip on how the industry was, how the industry worked, like how the technology industry actually worked. I work in technology. I don't work in the social media versions of technology, but I, you know, I work in the space and I wanted to kind of get a better grip on how it works because it seems like a lot of people inside of our generation, particularly because we kind of grew up ubiquitously with this stuff because we really don't know a life without it. So <clears throat> I wanted to get a better grip on what the industry actually is, how it works, all this other stuff while I was taking a break in order to enforce some of this technology stuff. So I made this post and I kind of did a research. I bought books. I did all this stuff on big tech and I found a lot of things that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. And I think like the whole industry is very misunderstood 
And I do think it's a net negative to society in the large scheme, but I think it's a net negative for the reasons that a lot of people don't either understand or don't either know because they're confusing and they're misinterpreted or misrepresented in the media or what they hear on social media and whatever. So I wrote this post and am now doing this podcast basically to revisit the big tech industry, define what it is, how it works, how it kind of poisons our minds and what is really out there. Because I tell parents all the time, I tell you know, my people in, the, in my generation around my age that like this shit isn't healthy for us and we have to better manage our relationship to a large degree, in my opinion, in order to really maximize its effectiveness because there is a use for it. But we're using it, I think, in a very wrong way. And part of it is because the way the industry is incentivized and run. So here we go. I'm going to try to get into it and really kind of explain it because I think it's an important subject and I plan on doing more of my posts on social media later because this is actually a series I did for my blog last uh, August and into September called the Escape from the Matrix series, which basically is like we need to get off of big tech and we need to get off it now at least to a degree. And so I will start with this and I plan on doing some more of this in the future because that honestly, besides the COVID was really, really eye-opening, just how different the lifestyles are. And I want it, revisiting that contrast, I thought was very interesting. So wanted to really get this out there to kind of get the contrast between what I've experienced, what I've seen and kind of take it in the direction so we can all understand it. So I'll start by saying I fucking hate Bill Maher. I think he's awful. He seems like a beyond cynical cock. His comedy is too dry even for me. His writers mo write most of it anyway, at least from what I'm told. He thinks I think his political commentary is spotty at best. He thinks vaccines cause autism. This, mostly caused by having a sister with autism and believing that modern medicine is a good thing, bothers me. I highly enjoy when my friend Dan Crenshaw roasted him. However, this does not mean that Bill Maher is awful or incorrect all the time. Hardly anyone is. I think Bill Maher is a pretty smart guy. I just don't agree with a lot of the things he says. I think most of it is tasteless. But the most I've ever agreed with Bill Maher was something he said on, during a run of his show Real Time on May 12, 2017. The segment was called Social Media is the New Nicotine. And it was a barrage. It was the biggest open roast of the masters of the universe I've seen by a public figure. I have to admit, this guy had balls. Jimmy Kimmel wouldn't have done it. Ellen DeGeneres, no way. Colbert, not a chance. Only a guy as sadistically scathing as Marr could have pulled off, pulled off such a thing. He opened with a stereotypical awful picture of Mark Zuckerberg, saying, Tech tycoons need to stop pretending that they're friendly nerd gods building a better world. To Marr, they just have to admit they're just tobacco farmers in t-shirts selling an addictive product to children. Ouch. That hurts. He then played a now-famous clip of Tristan Harris being interviewed by Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes. Harris, I've mentioned him a couple times before, and he's a quite smart individual. He's a former Google engineer turned social media de-activist and dissenter, compared the way big tech's algorithms controlled your minds to a slot machine. The more you pull it, the more validation it gives you. The more dopamine gets wrung out of your brain like a sponge. The more cigarettes you have to smoke to satisfy your compulsion. Mark kept going. He expanded on this concept, something that people have dubbed brain hacking, especially young people. He then went to the food industry for sourcing, specifically citing Kellogg and Keebler. Keebler, like all processed food, isn't in the business of satisfying your hunger. Oh no, that's too easy for them. It's not good business. It doesn't look good in an income statement. Investors and share stockholders don't care about satisfying hunger, at least to the degree that they don't in a corporate setting. Keebler, like all processed foods, carefully extracts the right amount of chemicals, fats, salt, sugars, and other elements of food 
I don't know, what is this, microparticles? I don't know. Measures them and puts the perfect dose in each item so that you specifically don't feel satisfied. They'd rather you eat five than one and ten than five. It's better for them that way. It moves more product. Big tech is the same way. Its value compounds with usage. The more you yank that slot machine, the more you piss away your mental fortitude in favor of short-term validation. Big Tobacco did the same thing in the first part of the 20th century. Cigarettes were cool, man. James Dean smoked them. So did Marilyn Monroe. If you weren't smoking cigarettes, you weren't cool. Flavored tobacco tasted good, man. You just had to try it. Except Big Tobacco wasn't selling flavored tobacco. They were selling nicotine and tar and all the other bad shit that came wrapped in those little seductive sticks of death. They preyed on the weak, specifically the poor and the young, in order to push product. It was a nefarious strategy, but it was also highly effective. They were the masters of the universe back in the olden days. Until the good old U.S. of A. got involved. The government clapped back at Big Tobacco after entities such as the American Heart Association said that this shit isn't good for you. They slapped heavy fines and taxes on tobacco products and forbid them from being sold to anyone under a certain age. We're seeing something similar in some states with different flavored tobacco products such as Jules. It's the same evil, just incarnated in a different vehicle. Marr laid the groundwork for my argument. I'd thank him if he wasn't such a cock. Our attention is the new cigarettes. Except we don't smoke our attention. We simply click, like, and swipe it away, all collected into the maws of big tech for obscene profits. Facebook's inaugural goal was to quote-unquote connect the world. That's nice, but untrue. They didn't want to connect the world. They wanted to infect it. I was sensing this exact thing around a month ago, right after I finished Cal Newport's, or a month ago then, this is in August, I had just finished Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism, which is a great book, you all should read it. <coughs> I had sensed that our world, and specifically my generation's, relationship with technology was becoming more toxic. And the fucked up thing? I think a lot of people know this, too. But no one is doing anything about it, and I found this strange. This is going to be the next, or this was the next post after this. But I was so appalled from what I learned that I knew I had to do something. So I unplugged for an entire month. But I knew that just taking time off from technology was not enough. I knew I had to get educated on the subject just to see the type of stuff that we were dealing with. Technology, and the mongers that acted as, as its overlords, is remarkably uncharted territory from a lot of fronts. There's a surprisingly low amount of government regulation on it for such a widely used product. It's actually being discussed as a utility now. It's the greatest commodity business in the world. Although, as far as I know, Mark Cuban and Sundar Pichai don't try to shoot each other's dicks off like banana tycoons in El Salvador do. At least there's legislation against that in America. So being bored as shit for my first, in my first week without technology, I decided to do more reading. So I went to the local bookstore down the street from my apartment to support them throughout the beer virus crisis. I initially went to buy The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, which is an incredibly overrated and awful book, so don't, I would suggest not reading it. But two other books caught my eye. Spending an additional $60 that I really couldn't spend, I purchased Don't Be Evil by Rana Furuhar and Facebook The Inside Story by Stephen Levy. I proceeded to bury my nose in them for the next two and a half weeks, and the horror was worse than I imagined. In Levy's 520-plus page Monster, he detailed every single bit of Facebook's founding and current standing in the world. It had over 500 citations. It was a behemoth, but it was incredibly illuminating. Furuhar a lead columnist for the Financial Times and an avid critic of big tech, dove deep into the current standing of the industry, mostly hitting on Amazon, Facebook, not hitting on, that's bizarre, mostly hitting Amazon, Facebook, and Google with a sprinkle of Apple on top. 
holistically with a cynicism that was rivaled by the, only by the aforementioned Bill Maher. So I'll say this again, and you know, if not again, then I'll say this. I'm a capitalist. I love capitalism, but I don't think that it's perfect. These books both lean decently heavy to the left from a political perspective, but the clarity in the overall arguments made their point abundantly clear. Big tech is the mainly bi the biggest example maybe ever of that imperfection and how it can end up destroying all the good capitalism creates if you let it run, let it run rampant. I alluded to it in my last post of the rise of political populism on both sides of the aisle. People are losing their faith that capitalism can work for them and therefore are wanting more and more to get rid of it. This is not good. Big tech... Much like the big banks of the 2008 financial crisis and the big market of the 1929 Great Depression are teetering on a perilous axis. We've become too dependent on them. Who knows what kind of calamity would happen if something were to happen to them? But we can't let them run on like this either. The excessive excess must stop. But I would take it a step further. It must stop now. Immediately. The kibosh must be put on, or I think it will be too late. It might already be, as we'll see later. Government moves slow, and the market fast. The gap may already be insurmountable. I'm not an expert on economic policy. It's laughable to even put me in the same sentence as one. But I do have an asset that I don't think is used nearly enough by these people. Common sense. Common sense is what we need to solve this problem. So that's where this argument will lie. In order to deliver that an argument and dissect its consequences, we're going to be doing an analysis of Facebook, the most concerning of all big tech companies in my opinion. There are other examples, but this is the one that I believe is the greatest potential for disaster. It troubles me greatly. We will turn next to how the problems have escalated, and then I'll deliver my proposed solution that could at least slow some of this shit down before the train runs off the rails. I still don't care for Bill Maher. I probably never will. But he saved his most accurate claim for last. I'll always respect him for it. Quote, Philip Morris just wanted your lungs. The App Store wants your soul. So, as an intro to this intro of this section, I want to give massive props to Stephen Levy, the editor at large at Wired and the senior editor at Newsweek. His book, the aforementioned Facebook, The Inside Story, is the basis for this section. Levy is widely regarded as the premier technology journalist of all time. His book, as I mentioned above, is massive, but absolutely excellent. And more importantly, absolutely essential for a topic of this magnitude. For the reasons I'm about to lay out, and more widespread reasons in the section after this, I'm about to explain why big tech has become nearly all monopolistic, specifically Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Facebook, in my opinion, is the most dangerous of those four. Therefore, using mine and Levy's research, I'm going to attempt to use Facebook as an explanation of that broader trend. So, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the film The Social Network, the film based on the writings of Ben Mesrich in this book, The Accidental Billionaires. Well, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but most of that is either A, completely overblown and or irrelevant, or B, fictional. It's just a dramatized and satirical Jesse Eisenberg doing his thing, and quite well, I should mention, by the way, accompanied by a prepubescent Andrew Garfield and the coked-out Justin Timberlake, who's also excellent. Levy covers the extent of the whole film in about 80 of the 520 pages. It's a blip of time in the grand scheme of things. So, I'm not going to recite the movie. What I am going to do is fill in the details. Mark Zuckerberg was born in New York to two doctors, a dentist and a psychiatrist. He grew up in good standing, his family not starving or in need of any money at the time. He was just like a lot of us average people. He was an excellent student and later convinced his parents to send him to Exeter, a highly touted boarding school in New Hampshire. He was a captain of the fencing team and learned five languages. 
Mark Zuckerberg had two passions, classics and technology, and we'll get into the latter first. From a young age, Zuckerberg was obsessed with computers. His first was an Atari that he got in middle school, which, is, which was a gift around his bar mitzvah. Uh, Star Wars theme, much respect, given to him by his parents. He played on it constantly, which constantly toying with his programs and playing games. He additionally, like many at the time, was an avid user of AOL, the first mainstream instant messaging service. But Zuckerberg had a problem with both computers and instant messaging. They weren't personal enough. Computers were cool on your own, but you couldn't exactly share them. They did have a big-ass box and hard drive, in case you forgot back then. AOL was a mind-blowing innovation, but you had to make up a username. No one really knew if the person they were talking to was secure or even a real person or not. So while at Exeter, he and fellow student Adam D'Angelo, which later turned out to be one of Facebook's best and most influential employees, created a program called Synapse, which used primitive machine learning tactics in order to create playlists, much like Spotify does today. In the words of a student, quote, Some students played games. Mark created them, end quote. Zuckerberg didn't want to be a player. He wanted to make the game. Which circles back to the first passion. Zuckerberg graduated Exeter not with a diploma in anything related to technology, but with a degree in classics. I didn't really know they gave diplomas in high schools, but I guess at fancy boarding schools they do. He regularly quoted the ancients like Cato the Elder and Virgil, launching into speeches throughout his time at Facebook about conquering something they had to get done at the time. One of Zuckerberg's face favorite computer games was a game called Civilization, which he, where he played World Conqueror, launching attacks from distant lands to claim them for himself. Which is funny, because it mirrors the epic crusade he would bark on, embark on starting about two years later. So, Zuckerberg gets into Harvard, but he doesn't like class all that much. He finds it a waste of his time. He would rather build things. Makes a couple of websites, but they all have the same problem with the computers and the instant messaging. They're not personal enough for him. However, one night Zuckerberg hits the nail on the head with a site called FaceMash, which consisted of an algorithm of girls in Harvard and ranked them by their attractiveness based on rankings from outside people. The site was so popular that it broke Harvard's servers. Zuckerberg was put on academic probation. But that came with notoriety. Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, the twin sons of wealthy socialites and soon-to-be Olympic rowers, went to Zuckerberg to help them code their website, which would later become the social networking platform ConnectU, if you remember it. Zuckerberg agreed. However, he soon discovered that the Winklevoss twins' idea was flawed too, so he stalled them. While writing his own code on the side, Zuckerberg deliberately put off coding for the twins in order to perfect his new site, thefacebook.com. Now, it might have been slimy, but this isn't, isn't necessarily wrong. People do it all the time. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Sometimes it costs you a like on Twitter, other times it costs you $600 billion. Unfortunately for the Winklevoss twins, it was the latter. Zuckerberg launched the site, which promptly caught on fire. It featured real people, people who you actually knew, and pictures of them to identify and create a network of your preferred friends. Zuckerberg emphasized privacy. It was to be the core feature of the site. Additionally only available, initially only available to college campuses, Zuckerberg rented server space and employed four people to start the company. Dustin Moskovitz, Chris Hughes, Andrew McCollum, and Eduardo Saverin. Moskovitz and McCollum would code along with Zuckerberg. Hughes would market the site, and Saverin would handle the business. And the business grew faster than anyone deemed possible. So taking a lesson from his idol Bill Gates, Zuckerberg took a sabbatical from Harvard and moved out to Palo Alto to pursue the Facebook. Moskovitz, McCollum, and Hughes went with him. Saverin stayed behind, chasing advertising money for the site. 
However, Saverin did introduce Zuckerberg to the one person who would alter the history of the company and take it further into the stratosphere, Sean Parker. Sean Parker, the founder of Napster, was a bad boy of Silicon Valley, the bad boy of Silicon Valley at the time, in fact. Everyone hated him because he had already gutted several industries of their business while paving the way for the future. He became Zuckerberg's closest confidant, someone who he trusted immensely to pursue that conquering of the world. But that meant one thing. Saverin had to go. Zuckerberg agreed. He was just holding them back. In another shady move, Zuckerberg did not directly inform Saverin of his demotion. But, at the end of the day, Saverin signed his own death warrant, quite literally. On the contract he signed to monetize Facebook to outside investors, he also signed over the rights to have his share in the company diluted from 30% to almost zero to give to those outside investors. A lot of people don't know how this works. In order to give shares and sell them, someone has to give them up. And in the contract that Saverin signed, he agreed to dilute his shares to next to nothing. So Saverin complained and sued Zuckerberg. But it didn't matter. In the word of, words of Rashida Jones and the social network, it's a speeding ticket. With Saverin ousted, someone else had to go. Parker. Parker's behavior had become erratic, and a cocaine bus with a then-Facebook, they had then changed the name, intern sealed Parker's death warrant too. Our friend Peter Thiel, who was the first angel investor in Facebook, and a, I wouldn't say a friend, but maybe a colleague of Sean Parker's, soon became Zuckerberg's closest confidant on the business side and helped put people in position to run the company while Zuckerberg focused on the product. Skip forward a few years and Facebook is a behemoth. Bolstered by the outside hires of the likes of Andrew Bosworth, Chris Cox, and Sheryl Sandberg, the company began to skyrocket. Their IPO was one of the biggest ever, even though it initially flopped. It was, again, a speeding ticket. During this time of rapid growth, two catalysts happened that sent Facebook on the path to monopolization. The first was the news feed. Launched slightly after Facebook ousted Parker and Saverin, it was the company's then-biggest controversy. Before, you could only post on The Wall, which was a board that you posted updates on. You simply just wrote or typed or posted a picture, and it would only appear on your profile. The idea of having those posts blasted out for all to see was absolutely unheard of. No social network had done it before. It was an invasion of privacy, some said. But the team wanted to increase traffic, and this was the best way to do it. The, upcry was, uh, the outcry was uproarious. People were pissed. They didn't like the change. They wanted it removed. But Zuckerberg held his ground. He said that they would come around to it. And he was right. The site got even more popular. Throw an open registration, which throws the floodgates open to nearly everybody, and the like button, and you have an absolute wave of traffic. But it wasn't enough. Eventually, the growth stalled. Facebook needed a shot in the arm. And to do it, they hired both their most important and most infamous hire ever, Chamath Palapatia. Palapatia was a firecracker, to put it mildly. He grew up a poor Canadian who immigrated from Sri Lanka. He couldn't stand private school kids. He was obsessed with becoming the biggest and best anything that anyone could hope for. Ditching his job trading derivatives for an investment firm, he headed out to Silicon Valley and landed at AOL. But when Facebook came calling, Palapatia couldn't resist. He was their missing piece and he knew it. Zuckerberg had a special project for Palapatia. It was simply to be called Growth. Palapatia's job was simple. Grow the company as fast as possible in as many ways as you can manage. Don't care who is in the way. Crush them. Palapatia was more than happy to oblige. He was great at it. Facebook began to spread internationally into new markets that they had never thought possible. He was a madman, 
the lead general in Zuckerberg's world-conquering crusade, much like William Tecumseh Sherman in the Civil War. But guess what fell under the growth team? The news feed. That grew like mad, too, by any means necessary. In order to grow it, the, gro the growth team changed the algorithm. Gone were the days of relevant posts and accurate content. If it didn't contribute to growth, it didn't matter. The algorithm would now emphasize clicks over relevance. The facts didn't matter. Only the reactions did. Even though Palapatia didn't last very long at Facebook, his impact to the company cannot be understated. His singular mission of growth at any cost, enforced by Mark Zuckerberg's motto of move fast and break things, instituted a culture of reckless abandon. Burn the boats behind you and press onward. You can always build new boats. In pursuing this, Facebook transformed technology as we knew it. Facebook had a network effect that was unparalleled in modern history. The amount of personal data they were accumulating was astonishing. They had two-sevenths of the entire world's population at their fingertips. But it wasn't enough. So on went the conquest. Facebook then went on a buying spree. First, they bought a wildly popular company called Instagram for a billion dollars, burning Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey, who wanted to buy it for $500 million. He deleted his Instagram. He was a super fan then, the day the announcement dropped. Only months later, Zuckerberg acquired overseas messaging company WhatsApp for $20 billion. It was a brilliant business model. Why pay for a phone line when you could just use the internet? Facebook owned the internet. It only made sense. Next was Oculus, a virtual reality company that Zuckerberg viewed as the next digital platform for around $2.3 billion in cash and stock. Along with Facebook Messenger, Zuckerberg now owned four of the top eight largest social media companies in the world, and the one that he believed would become in the top nine sooner or later, which was Oculus. Their founders couldn't do anything about it. They were all fired sometime after the acquisitions took place. With that conquest, Facebook now had three-sevenths of the entire world's population at their fingertips, a staggering combined three billion people on their combined platform. All should have been well, but it wasn't. You see, Mark Zuckerberg may have wanted to connect the world. He did so, quite successfully. But in connecting the world, you also connect all the bad that comes with it. Soon there were people doing bad things on Facebook. Shooting up religious institutions, killing people, sawing off their genitals with a serrated knife, raping people. All to post to Facebook. To combat this, Facebook decided to create large groups of people to monitor content. They would have to sit down and watch all any quote-unquote flagged material that was deemed potentially controversial from anyone who reported it. They had to view 400 jumps, which are pieces of flag content, for 40 seconds minimum to determine whether it was acceptable to leave up on the site. They were paid $15 an hour with no benefits, no therapy either. A lot of them needed it, but Facebook didn't oblige. And then came the Russia, Russia, Russia fiasco. I, like most, was puzzled about what this was all about. The media blew it up so much that no one could understand it. It was impossible to comprehend. Thankfully, Levy broke it down in very simple terms. The truth is, Russia did interfere in our election. However, the term interfere is a very versatile word. A lot of people understandably took it to different contexts. To do this interfering, Russian hackers made something called dark profiles, basically burner accounts by using an email to create a fake profile. When these profiles were created, they created content that would appeal to Facebook's algorithm. The algorithm works like this. Eyeballs are first, accuracy is second. That's how the news feed and the growth team was optimized. In knowing this, these manipulators put up sensationalized content that would naturally appeal to outrage, putting together splice clips of then-President Trump that poorly portrayed him, Hillary Clinton with devil horns, you get the gist. 
The consensus calculation after the internal probe was that the fake news posts reach about approximately 126 million Facebook users. That's not small potatoes. However, here's where I believe a lot of the mainstream media got it wrong. Both campaigns, specifically the Trump campaign, did this as well. 2016 was an ugly election. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton despise each other. They did everything they could to drag each other through the mud. Was some of what they were both saying true? I'm sure it was. But was some of what they were saying both untrue? You better believe it. But Facebook didn't care. Why would it? Their algorithm doesn't work that way. Facts don't matter. Only clicks and eyeballs do. I could post on Facebook right now that I'm a rainbow unicorn that shits out flowers. Is that untrue? It is. At least I think it is. But it might have a chance to pick, give me a lot of eyeballs. So Facebook will most likely leave it up. A Facebook employee cited by Levy stated that the Trump campaign headed by Brad Parscale ran the greatest digital marketing campaign he had ever seen. They appealed so well to the Facebook algorithm that they were able to manipulate it completely. Partisanship aside, that's not anything but good business. They beat Facebook at their own game. That's why there was no collusion in the Russia probe led by Robert Mueller. There was no conclusive evidence that anyone in the Trump campaign specifically told anybody from Russia to interfere on behalf of their candidate. A lot of made-up and bogus content was created, and you don't have to look any further to TikTok to know that it's as good of a business as anything. It's not like these people mind-hack millions of Facebook users to go out and vote a certain way. People aren't that addicted to Facebook. At least not yet. Cambridge Analytica followed. This was another confusing story, led by our ineptitude of our mainstream media to dumb it down enough for us to see through the bullshit partisan ideologues of either side of the political aisle. So thank God once again for Stephen Levy. Basically what happened was this. Facebook made a deal with data scientist Alexander Kogan, who wanted to create polls and surveys based on the data from Facebook users. Little did Facebook know that Kogan was planning not to not just get their data, but the data of all their friends as well. Kogan then packaged that data and sold it to political campaigns, the two most prominent being that of Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. Oof. Not soon after, 87 million Facebook users had been duped by the company they trusted with their data, having sold it to Cambridge Analytica to prof for profit. Again, there was nothing wrong with this. The Cruz and Trump campaigns both paid for what they thought was accessible data. It was Facebook's fault for letting that data out of the box in the first place. How would they have known? Remember, almost no one in America understood the story anyways. Mark Zuckerberg was brought to trial for this, as was his partner in crime, quite literally to some people, Sheryl Sandberg. And they got shredded by the politicians that presided over it. Other than an absolutely hilarious exchange with former Senator Orrin Hatch, it was a shellacking that not many had seen. Politicians left, right, and center bullied Zuckerberg and his top-level executives for hours. Senator Elizabeth Warren, amongst others, called for a breakup of big tech, and many agreed. But Zuckerberg had a trump card. Like many things that came to the mind over the course of his creation of the greatest company of my life, he wrote it on a napkin. If he was asked why he believed Facebook should, be broke, should not be broken up, he had one answer that would automatically stump everyone. China. As soon as a comment like this came up about big tech, Zuckerberg, as well as the other heads of these companies, by the way, would say that if they broke them up, China would dominate the world technology, company, technology economy. And he was right. China doesn't have our regulations. They don't play by our rules, or those of anyone else. They want to crush the United States technology economy, which is the single most important sector in the entire world. Big Tech was playing chicken with the United States government, daring them to blink. And the government did, every time. Just like the big banks in 2008, they were too big to fail. But it's the last chapter of the book that is the most concerning. The move to break up Facebook is gaining more and more steam. 
Whether that will happen to them or any big tech company by that measure remains to be seen. But Zuckerberg has a trump card for that too. He called it the living room. Zuckerberg, having had all the acquisitions previously named for some time now, is integrating them further into the fabric of the core of his company. In the blog post cited in the first sentence, Zuckerberg framed this as an intimate and private feature of Facebook's core products into the consumer experience. You've probably noticed this when you've logged into your Instagram account. It's no longer Instagram. It's Instagram by Facebook. WhatsApp by Facebook. Oculus from Facebook. Facebook is currently working to integrate those core companies so deeply into his company that even if the government decided to go forward, they could not do anything to stop them. They'd simply be too sewn in to rip the f to the fabric to rip it out. Their lawyers and lobbyists, Big Tech is the second largest spender in Washington after Big Pharma, are working on this right now. Zuckerberg's living room would be a perfect digital hub. You'd have everything you need. You'd never have to leave. They'd all just be ha one happy technology family, sitting back and eating popcorn or whatever. Not only would they make it hard to break up, they'd make it nearly impossible. The other big tech companies are doing this as well. They see the canary in the coal mine. They know it's only a matter of time. So they're working like mad to try to prevent from what, what would be their undoing. And who knows if they'll succeed. But you want to know the strangest thing about all of this? After all the citations, reading, and research, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg is a bad person. Or evil, like a lot of people say he is. I really don't. I know he idolized the great conquerors, but I don't think he imagined being the fourth richest person in the world and holding the largest treasure trove and the most valued commodity on earth, your data, from a website he created in his dorm room. I don't think he wanted the bloodshed, the massacres, the people harming themselves on his social media sites. I don't think he wanted Donald Trump to be president. He's a registered Democrat, along with most of the other Facebook brass, save for Peter Thiel. Chris Hughes worked to get Barack Obama elected president in 2008. Chris Cox took a year-long leave of absence last year to work as a lobbyist for the Democratic Party. So no, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg is a bad guy. I don't think he's evil. But I do think he's something worse. Naive. The word utopia has two meanings. The first is the perfect place. The second is the place that cannot be. Mark Zuckerberg thought and still thinks that he can create that utopia. He, th he thought that by moving social interactions online that all the vices of the world would wash away. He thought he could play God. He tried to take an imperfect world and make it perfect, which with him as the emperor, the savior. This is a lie, a fallacy, an unrealizable dream. You can make the best algorithm in the world. You can make that perfect. But human beings are and always will be imperfect. Anything who can beat, thinks they can beat human nature is hilariously foolish. Which is what makes the continued ascent of big tech all the more scary. They are all the same kind of naive. They all think they can play God too. But they are not without help. Next we'll give some props to Rana Furuhar and how our institutions have helped enable our current robber barons. So, like the previous section, I would be remiss not to give serious thanks to Rana Furuhar, the lead business columnist for the Financial Times, for her work on Don't Be Evil. The broader perspective on big tech as a holistic industry was indispensable in my greater depth of my knowledge. Don't Be Evil was mainly a referendum on Google. It was their first model in the number one rule of business when it was founded by Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Google, I learned, is just as terrifying as Facebook. I just didn't know about it as much. 
it's the only rival to Facebook in terms of data, and a lot of people think they have more of it than Facebook does. She gets into a lot of other topics on big tech, such as the uberization of business, the labor disparities that are currently occurring amongst workers, and the inefficiency of government to stop any of that from happening. This opened my eyes to just how powerful big tech was, and how precarious of a position we are all in because of it. Too much concentrated power in anything is not a good thing. I don't like it in government, and I don't like it in business. There must be balance. Things like the American Revolution, the Great Depression, the 2008 financial crisis have taught us this. But it is not without its enablers. No one can get this big on their own. No one. Everyone and every company needs help in some form or fashion. One of the main points of Furuhara's book boiled down to the three main things about big tech that largely need a rethink. The first is the definition of what an antitrust is. Originally, when published, the Sherman Antitrust Act barred businesses from using non-competitive practices in order to gain advantage in the marketplace. It was made to combat things like the railroad mongers and the other monopolies of the early 20th century. This was a good thing. Businesses were able to thrive in advance without becoming too dependent on a small few to carry the load. But then Robert Bork happened. Robert Bork was a lawyer, Attorney General of the United States, and later a Supreme Court Justice appointed by President Reagan. But neither of those would be Bork's legacy, at least according to Furuhar. She argued that his biggest achievement was a book that he published in 1978, later revised in 1993, entitled The Antitrust Paradox. In the most landmark book on antitrust law ever written, it's also the most cited by scholars, Bork proposed a fundamental shift in the implementation and regulation of antitrust law in practice. Bork stated that the major goal of the government pertaining to antitrust law should be to promote quote-unquote business efficiency. Translation, Anything that made businesses more efficient should not be considered monopolistic. See all the mergers and acquisitions that Facebook made. All because of one guy. That law changed, and on its face, it seemed like a good thing. Who would want a more efficient who wouldn't want a more efficient business? Who would not want to create cheaper products for consumers? It does make sense from a lot of perspectives. But there was one thing that Bork did not see think about, and to his defense, he could probably have not have seen coming when it was originally published in the late 1970s. What if that definition becomes irrelevant? The engine that makes big tech run, and we'll get to this in a second, is data. Always has been, and always will be, at least for the foreseeable future. It's the most valuable commodity in the world. It's more valuable than natural gas or oil, more valuable than gold, more valuable than almost anything that falls in the same category. I know a man who works, used to work in technology sales for a big tech company, one that owned their own data centers. The man was tasked one day by his company to go to a data center where the company stored the data and do something. I think it was dropping off a package or something. When he arrived, he was stunned. It was in the middle of nowhere. Armed guards with automatic weapons all over the place. Barbed wire fences with electric wiring. Retina scanners to get into the doors. All for a bunch of ones and zeros and a bunch of refrigerators. That's how valuable this stuff is. It's like breaking into Fort Knox. It's nearly impossible. So the question is, how does big tech get this data so easily? Simple. It offers you this service for free. You don't have to pay to do a Google search. Amazon's platform is free to browse and peruse. You don't need a down payment for a Facebook account. But this is puzzling to some. It was to me. Why should you be able to access this for free? Why don't you need to pay for access to these services? The answer of the big tech companies comes in the form of one man, our friend Eduardo Saverin. So I was on LinkedIn one day when I revisited Saverin's profile. 
See, as a young lad interested in business, I was obsessed with anyone who formed Facebook, Saverin being among them. The Social Network was and still is one of my favorite movies, even though it's largely dramatized. I've been recently been rethinking a lot of where I stood on Facebook, and I went to Saverin's profile to unfollow him. But right before I clicked the button, I noticed something that I thought to be incredibly disturbing. Saverin was the first initial investor in Facebook. He kicked in $1,000 along with Zuckerberg in order to rent server space. Saverin really didn't do much after that. He got kicked out of the company about two years later for that reason. However, that didn't stop him from getting a nice settlement from the company, starting a hedge fund, and moving to Singapore for quote-unquote tax purposes, whatever the fuck that means. Cynicism aside, I looked briefly at his LinkedIn bio. Saverin, naturally, had taken way more credit for his involvement than Facebook than he ever should have. But it wasn't that that was this. But that wasn't the disturbing part. In his description of the company, Saverin described Facebook as "quote unquote" the first social utility, and that's an incredibly bold claim to make. A utility is something that you need to properly function in the modern world. They are essentials. You could build for them every month. These are things like electricity, gas, and water. Without electricity, gas, and water, you're going to have a hard time making it in the world. To put Facebook in the same category as of electricity, gas, and water is ludicrous. You don't need Facebook to survive. Or do you? According to big tech, you absolutely do. And they kind of have a point. Could you imagine going for an extended period of time without having to look something up on Google, without getting something from Amazon, without checking social media? Hint, I did it, I did it for a month, and it was incredibly difficult. I couldn't imagine a life without all these big technologies in it for much more than that. We grew up with that. It's ubiquitous to us. That is why big tech offers their tools to us for free. They know most of us can't live without them, especially now and especially in a time where we couldn't do hardly anything for the past year. This dependence on their technologies is the reason why we give away the most valuable commodity in the world, our personal data, for free. It's the biggest bargain in the history of, the modern, of modern business. It would be like John D. Rockefeller drilling for oil without paying for someone without paying someone with someone paying for the whole operation. But oil does not work that way. Oil is regulated and taxed appropriately, as it should be. Data is not. This is why Bork's book is so important. When you get the most valuable commodity in the world for free, and you have a massive network of users to crowdsource from, you use it as a trampoline to vault ahead of everyone else. You use a buzzsaw of Bork's efficiency to mow down everyone in your path like Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Remember the, so, remember the Facebook versus Ford example. So let's just take two companies and let's contrast them. The most important of Facebook's assets are intangible, Ford's tangible. Ford cannot make an algorithm to optimize its whole business. It's simply not how it works for them. They don't have a network to make them money. They just sell vehicles. There is no escalation. Facebook and Big Tech have an unfair advantage because they never have to pay for the resource that makes them so much more valuable than everyone else. Ford does, and among many others, are far beyond the curve. With this unfair advantage comes massive profits, and with those massive profits come massive power, which makes me revisit my point of lobbying in Washington. If people, including me, wanted to know what has held the government back from doing something for so long, this could probably be one if, if not the biggest, reason for it. Big Tech spends a lot of money to protect themselves from the government dropping the hammer and ending their party before 11. We've seen it in the process of a court hearing with Mark Zuckerberg and Chinese technology companies. They buy people off, not unlike the crime families of New York, in order to protect them from getting clamped down by regulation. And they buy people off big, too. The snowball we talked about earlier is escalating. It's only getting faster and larger. The velocity is growing. But all snow has to melt. All runaway snowballs have to crash into something eventually. 
When the stock market did in 1929, we almost sent the, our entire nation into poverty. The entire world financial system almost collapsed in 2008. Even though big tech is not closely related to the financial system directly, but they're getting close to things like Apple Pay and Robinhood, I could sense a similar catastrophe on the horizon. I don't want to repeat one of those previous two occurrences again. That would not be good. Although I could see it being worse. What if, instead of our 401ks and savings take a hit, it would be us, ourselves? What if there were a data breach and all of our data would be exposed for the entire world to see? Every skeleton in our closet hung out to dry. This would not be good. In fact, it would be catastrophic. That would wreak unspeakable harm to all involved, which in the case of big tech is all of us. I would prefer to avoid this fate. The only way to be sure of that is to treat big tech like we treat any other monopoly, by bringing it back down to earth to better serve their consumers. So I'll start off this final section by saying this. I am, again, not an expert on economic policy. It would be nonsensical to say that I am. However, I pretty am pretty commonsensical, but um, Ching, feel free to flame me in an email or comment below. The, the bottom line is, there are just some things that need to be done. Like I talked about in my post about privilege, we just want a fair game to be called. But I'm going to try. I think it's a big problem that nothing has been done, so I'd like to propose my own solution. I love capitalism, like I said earlier. It's created so many good things for so many good people. But when it can go awry, devastation awaits. And I don't like that either. There are two things that ruin capitalism. Excessive government regulation and monopolies. We're dealing with the second problem. And I will take a first and we'll take a good amount of the first to stop it. That's where we must visit first. So the first thing that I would suggest would be to get rid of Robert Bork's version of the Sherman Antitrust Act. The simple reason it's outdated. It's really not Robert Bork's fault that it is. The technology just didn't exist back in those days. He couldn't have known that it would grow into this magnitude and power. No one could have. The new Sherman Antitrust Act should be the old Sherman Antitrust Act, the one that calls for breakups of companies that engage in both anti-competitive behavior and price fixing. Big tech does both. It's necessary for the ethics of the industry that we institute fair competition to that market again. But that will cause the most uncomfortable action that I believe needs to be taken breaking up the companies themselves. This is a highly aggressive move, one that we haven't seen since the 1980s. But it must be done. We must get uncomfortable and realize the damage and power that they have amassed. Concentrated power in any entity, whether that be in business or government, is not a good thing. History has proven this time and time again. Just ask the French in the late 1970s, they'll tell you. The companies that need to go immediately are Amazon, Facebook, and Google. There are probably more of them, but those are the ones in which I would start. Their non-competitive practices must be stopped, and fair business play must be instituted for the modern version of flourishing capitalism. However, in order to get that capitalism started, we need to cut the tumors out and have them start anew. Facebook should divest Instagram, Oculus, and WhatsApp. Google should divest DeepMind and YouTube. Amazon should divest Amazon Web Services, Twitch, Whole Foods, and Zappos. All of the companies that I named need to be divested that, that I named to be divested can survive on their own. The behemoths that inquired them did so not out of necessity, but out of that same obsession with growth that consumed Facebook. They're not essential to their survival. They only exist because big tech were afraid that they could shave some money off their top line. Amazon, Facebook, and Google are incredible companies by themselves. They should be able to do M&A, and they should be able to grow just like any other business. But they need to do it ethically and with fairness. Non-competitive practices must not be tolerated. 
and that includes their consumers. Once the companies are divested and allow, allowed to thrive on their own under the new Antitrust Act, another step must be taken to ensure that they, or other potential behemoths, don't engage in the unethical and unsolicited mining of consumer data. To do this, we need transparency. Because these companies actually do line this out. The problem with that method is it's in the actual dreaded terms and conditions section every time you log onto a new site. Snore. But it's meant to do that to you. They're meant to confuse and exhaust you so you hand over your precious data that you sell to people. This must stop and transparency must be adhered to. In order to do this, companies should have to explicitly and openly say what they plan to do with your data should you hand it over to them. There should be an optional opt-in that should be regulated by the government. It should look, be in bright, bold red lettering next to the website pop-up on your page when you visit the website. The whole shit, baby. That way, consumers won't get lost in the sauce about how their data gets monetized to feed the big tech machine. They can see where their data is going and what is going to happen to it when they use that company's technology and how they will be affected by it. The optional opt-in will give consumers peace of mind so that they will start to trust these giants once again. This is what we you will use for it unless you opt out should be the standard. Which leads to the last point that I believe should happen not just in big tech, but in industry now and in the future. Consumers should have ownership rights to their own data. They should be paid for the usage of their personal property, just like anyone in any other industry. They should not give it away for free, especially if that company is using it for profit. This may seem like pie in the sky for some, but it's already happening in some places. California, of all places, is proposing legislation to do something like this. I would imagine that more states would soon follow. And in my opinion, they're right in doing so. Your personal property should stay yours unless someone buys it from you. In the words of Heath Ledger's Joker, if you're good at something, never do it for free. In addition, companies should be forced to list data on their financial statements. As the most valuable commodity in the world, it's abhorrent that companies can get away with not listing their most prized asset and the revenue reaped from that asset on their records for auditing. The former accounting teaching assistant finance major in me is crying just thinking about it. In this way, the government and other up-and-coming companies can see where their data is going and look to fill in the gaps around it or compete with it directly. All they have to do is follow the money. In this transparency, consumers can know that they're getting compensated fairly and they're playing by the rules. We don't need any more Cambridge Analytica nukes to be dropped anywhere. That would not be good. Now, is this going to happen? With all of our ruling class and the trends in our society, absolutely fucking not. Jordan Belfort voice. But a guy can hope, right? I'm just a dude with an internet blog, if you remember that. Maybe I'm in way over my head. It's quite possible that I am. But again, common sense reigns supreme in most cases. I think all of this is pretty common sense. But again, I might just be told to shut up and obey like a normal internet blogger. Time will tell, I suppose. Chamath Palapatia has openly admitted his disgust for his contributions to Facebook. He's lobbied against them several times, including stating that he fought, thought Facebook was, quote, abusive. Chris Hughes wrote an entire op-ed in the New York Times about how he believed Facebook should be broken up. I believe them both to be right. Maybe they'll give back their $1 billion and $430 million respective net worths back to prove how much they really atone for their sins. But I'd say that's more pie in the sky for anything I've written this, in this blog post so far. Our ruling class works in mysterious ways. They talk out of both sides of their mouth a lot, mostly when it benefits their agendas. Big tech, other than politicians, have been the biggest beneficiaries of this, mostly because they're aligned with politicians so much in their goals and motives. Connecting the world became an afterthought when money entered the picture. Like anything, big tech must be held responsible for their actions. We must not stifle them unnecessarily, and overcorrection must not enter the picture. But we need to call a fair game, 
and encourage good business that treats consumers with respect. Because in reality, and as much as I hate to say it, Bill Maher was correct. Big tech is the new big tobacco. Let's just hope I didn't make our angry nods or angry nerd gods too angry. So that's my post on big tech, guys. I think it's really relevant. I think, you know, especially with my COVID situation, everything going on with it, I think it's a to topic that people should be more educated on. So I hope this helps. See you next time. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?